A joyous opportunity, isn't it, to come together, to do that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to appreciate the glory that's ours in as much as we can offer to Him the heartfelt worship and do so feeling and knowing that by the authority of His Word that as long as we do whatever we do in word or deed, doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus, we can rest assured He'll be pleased with our worship and how good it will be for us to have been here. Tonight, as we come to this part of our service, our songs have already been so uplifting and encouraging in our prayer as well. And what about if we open the Word of God and spend at least a few moments reflecting on the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's a subject that has been no small one in terms of discussion and controversy, a subject that has often rested upon the hearts and minds of individuals and has often been something that has led to disagreements. However, the Word of God, as you and I will study it tonight, I hope that you'll follow along with me in your, in your Scriptures. And as we study this particular topic, let's begin it with these introductory thoughts. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. I suppose if you and I were to poll, say, 10,000 people, those who would have an attachment, some understanding of that which is religious, and invite them to share with us what their impression of the Holy Spirit's baptism is. I suppose we would obtain many different answers. In fact, I'd like to share with you, as I attempt to do some research in preparation for this lesson, I found this particular presentation, one gentleman's guarantee for how you could rest assured that you could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It requires five steps, according to him, and they are these. You must have, in fact, the right motive, according to him. And as long as you have that a certain right motive, and you make a decision as to whether or not you really want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, following each one of them with the understanding that you must fully surrender to those demands of the Spirit... And then number four, to experience a full cleansing of that particular matter and topic, all outward sins in life. The only thing left is, if you'll then pray to God, He will give you the Holy Spirit in this baptismal fashion. And this gentleman guaranteed it. Isn't that interesting? There isn't a single verse in all the Bible that teaches that, not one. And yet that kind of thing often rests upon the hearts and the minds of many. For many have been led to believe, I've got to receive the Holy Spirit or else I can't be pleasing to God. And I need it in a baptismal measure. Let's spend a few moments tonight attempting to decipher, to look with care at what those verses teach, and to understand what does God have in store for you and me in relation to the Holy Spirit. As we study, though, it's the baptism in relation to it. Let's close that slide by simply asking those famous questions of Romans 4, verse 3. What saith the Scripture? It really doesn't matter what men may think. It doesn't matter what any group or convention or assessment of individuals may be. What has God declared? And you and I will be content with that. With that said, I've divided the lesson into several sections, and here's the first one. First of all, let's build our study as we begin to appreciate the manner in which this truth is set forth, and we do so by observing the promise related to it. Now again, you'll notice this gentleman of whom I've spoken, 
He, in fact, gave a guarantee as if a promise of God was attached to this. It all begins, quite frankly, even in the heart of the Old Testament. In the little book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, we have on that occasion a dramatic presentation. And without a doubt, it was asserted as a prophecy with a strong promise in it. God, in fact, through the prophet said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And that Spirit was the Holy Spirit, and He thus prophesied that in the last days, I'm going to do this. Now, without a doubt, God there related to Joel the fact that He was going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. As you give that thought in mind, may I ask you to notice, as you and I come then to the New Testament, we aren't left to appreciate any further its fulfillment than this. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up with the other eleven apostles, and as they expounded and elaborated and taught the wonderful doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may recall that as all that began, there were some in the audience in that group that day who accused the apostles of being drunken. We all remember, Peter was quick to say, It's only nine o'clock in the morning. These aren't drunken as you suppose, but this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes verbatim, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. This is what Joel was talking about. This is what God was relating to him. This is the pouring out of the Spirit. You and I begin to see something immediate. When that Holy Spirit baptism was in under discussion, Peter specifically said this is the fulfillment of it. And so we aren't left to wonder what was in view. Let's build our discussion furthermore like this. Did you notice that in between those passages, there was an occasion when John the Immerser had something to say about this? And it was a lesson text that was read in our hearing just a few minutes ago. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. There again is a reference to the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Did all of us notice who John said would do it? John couldn't do it. He said, the one who's coming after me, he's greater than I am, he's mightier than I am, I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoes, quite frankly. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Isn't it true then we learn something rather fantastic? That only the Lord Jesus Christ is the administrator of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. On every occasion, on all those specifics wherein we discover that that is taking place, only Jesus is the administrator. John declared that truth, didn't he? Now you might notice in that same verse, he did make an additional mention of a baptism by fire, and one more time Jesus administers of that one too. I suppose that will be a different subject for a different sermon. But as we continue our discussion of this baptism of the Holy Spirit, would you note that Jesus made this statement in Luke chapter 24, verse number 49. Now we've just learned a minute ago that John said Jesus would administer this. I might ask, who was John talking with and who was he talking to in those verses? Well, let's notice how Jesus discussed it. In Luke chapter 24, verse number 49, 
after the Lord's crucifixion and after His resurrection, He met with those apostles. And He said to them, Tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And immediately we notice then that the Lord made promise to those apostles that the time would come when they themselves would be overwhelmed by and endued with power from on high. As we turn to Mark chapter 9 verse 1, we learn that that power would be accompanied by and would come in light of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus specifically said to them, Some of you standing here shall not taste of death until they've seen power come from on high. That power of the Holy Spirit. Keeping that in mind, look over to Acts chapter 1. In the opening chapter of the book of Acts, in fact, shortly before our Savior ascended back to heaven, in verse number 5 he said, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Notice, we're now getting close. What the Lord had thus previously taught and what John the Baptist had taught, Jesus now says, it's almost here. This baptism of the Holy Spirit was now almost ready to take place. Let's look back to Acts 1.5 then. Ye shall be baptized not many days hence. Whoever that ye is is the ones that were to be the recipients of this baptism. Whoever that ye is, is the one that was promised you will receive and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So let's look back to the previous verse. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. We just read who that was. The apostles were the ones that were Jesus said, Don't you leave Jerusalem. You tarry here to be endued with power from on high. And now it's that very ye, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost, with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Could we immediately note something? Pressing, powerful, and needful. Holy Spirit baptism was not promised to all mankind. It wasn't even promised to all disciples of Jesus Christ. On that occasion, it was promised to His disciples, rather to His apostles, and they only. Let's study further. As you and I close that slide, we've thus highlighted in a beautiful way, simply by looking at the grammar, the inspired passage and the text that has gone with it, something fantastic about the original recipients. Joel had prophesied it in the days of the Old Testament, but it hadn't come to pass. Then Jesus said, not many days hence it's going to happen. You and I have noticed Jesus thus has affirmed it was to be the apostles. Now our lesson isn't by any means over because we've got some more things to consider, but let's look at point number two. What's the nature of this baptism? First of all, notice again what it was that God said through Joel. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Now that word pour is an interesting word. You and I are used to pouring water, pouring milk, pouring lemonade, pouring tea. We're accustomed to a liquid being poured. And yet God used this word with respect to His Holy Spirit. There was a sense, a means whereby the pouring of that Spirit was to take place. Now you and I know the Holy Spirit is not lemonade. It's not milk. It's not water. And yet there was a sense in which the Holy Spirit in the mechanism and means of the Word of God, was to be poured out. 
May I invite you to notice? It was to be an overwhelming. On the occasion when that Spirit was poured out, the recipients would in fact be inundated by it. It brings to mind those other instances and significances in the Word of God in which we appreciate a person who is, shall we say, immersed in something, overwhelmed by something. That's what was going to happen. Those who received it would not be in position to deny it, to refuse it, to in other ways abandon it. Keeping that in mind, let's then study this. We in part can appreciate that conclusion based on this. Think with me on those other occasions when the word baptism is used in the Bible. And I'm not talking about water baptism yet. Let's think of this one. Do you remember that scene when Jesus taught about there were going to be those who would be baptized in suffering? For instance, in Luke 12, verse 50, you might remember on that occasion that the Lord had much to say about a great set of difficulties that were soon to come His way, but not only Him, those who would be professors of His. In fact, much of that was prompted by that scene when two of His apostles came to Him and said, We'd like to be honorary citizens in your kingdom. Let one of us reign on your left, the other on your right. That was James and John, of course. They wanted to be seated right next to the Master. They were still under the impression that it was an earthly, physical kingdom in view, and they wanted to be honorary citizens in it. You and I might never forget this. One must be awfully cautious what you ask for. Both of them got it. James got so close to the Lord, he had his head cut off in Acts chapter 12. He got so close to the Lord, he was overwhelmed with suffering just like the Lord said he'd be. What about John, his brother? The book of Revelation is the backdrop of that one. There was John banished to the Isle of Patmos. Why? Because of tribulation in the kingdom. Both of the brothers got what they asked for. It just wasn't anything close to what they imagined. Notice again then, on these instances, on these circumstances, they both were baptized in suffering. They were inundated with it. May I suggest that that bears a semblance as to what this brings to our mind. On that occasion, when these individuals were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were overwhelmed by it. It suited them and gave them power to accomplish things they otherwise couldn't have accomplished. One more thing might be this. So far, we've cast a strong spotlight on that initial statement of events wherein that baptism of the Holy Spirit was mentioned. But you'll notice one thing we haven't yet completed. Wasn't it true that God through Joel said, all flesh would, be, would receive this? Now, so far, we've learned that those apostles, in fact, were the recipients of it in Acts chapter 2, but they were Jews. Those individuals, those apostles, Peter and James and John and others, they were Jews in their circumstances. What about the Gentiles? All flesh should incorporate them as well. Was there an occasion in the Bible wherein God gave baptism of the Holy Spirit to Gentiles? Let's turn to Acts chapter 10. As you and I turn with me to that chapter, we now notice that the circumstances and the scenes here are very unique and very interesting. Beginning in verse number 44 of that chapter, 
While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there we have it. What occurred on the day of Pentecost as a consideration for those that were the Jews, namely those apostles that Jesus had specifically told they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that similar feature was now in a very localized way provided to Cornelius and his household, Gentiles, in Acts 10, verses 44 and following. As you keep those thoughts in mind with me, you'll notice then that all flesh had been the recipient just as God had said it'd be. The Jews on the day of Pentecost, the Gentiles, a few years later, there at the household of Cornelius. God had kept His promise. But one more time, would we each please notice that was not promised to all human beings and it wasn't even promised to all believers. First was the apostles and now the household of Cornelius only. Let's continue reading. In verse number 46, For they heard them speak with tongues. Who's the them? The household of Cornelius. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Who's the we? The apostles. Peter was an apostle. God has given to them a baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit just like He did us on the day of Pentecost. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As you and I close that slide, would we be again impressed with Jesus administered this. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't James. It wasn't Paul. It was only the Lord. Point number three. With those things, might we then take the opportunity to make a careful distinction based on the language of these verses and based on the presentation of them. Let's build it like this. Partly, no doubt, the reason for some of that confusion that has begun to exist and has existed for so long is that this distinction has not been recognized or at least has not been respected. There are several occasions in the Word of God when it was said that some person was filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's not the same as being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Look at some of these examples. In Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and 67, John's parents were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now his dad's name was Zechariah, his mother's name was Elizabeth, and it is there specifically said they were full of the Holy Spirit. How about John himself, John the Immerser? In, John, in Luke 1, verse 15, John is said to be full of the Holy Spirit. Or what about another example? In Acts 6, verse number 3, here... You may recall there was a problem in the early church. Some of the widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. Now those were Grecian widows. And the apostles said, You look out seven men whom we may appoint over this business, but make sure they're full of the Holy Ghost. So again, here were men who were said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now were they baptized in the Holy Spirit? Of course not. Jesus never promised it to them. But they were full of the Holy Ghost. What about Stephen in Acts 7, verse 55? He was full of the Holy Spirit as well. Maybe one final observation. In Acts eleven twenty four, 24, Barnabas was said to be full of the Holy Spirit, and yet not a single time were any of those immediate ones I listed ever baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not a one of them. 
In fact, did you note some of the chronology? That first one, Luke 1, verses 41 and 67, that text occurred prior to Jesus' statement that you and I mentioned earlier. They couldn't possibly have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but yet the text says they were full of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference in these two. In fact, may I be so quick to say, every one of us as Christians ought to be full of the Holy Spirit because this Word which the Spirit has given us ought to be dwelling in our heart. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3 verse 16. In that sense, every one of us ought to be full of the Holy Spirit. But not a one of us have ever been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let's read further. In Ephesians 5 verse 18, there in fact is even a commandment, a directive given to every one of us. Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, he specifically said to them, Be ye full of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us then ought to be due to the interest that we have in the Word of God and the allowance and its manifestation in our life, we should be full of that which the Spirit has provided. A couple of final things on that slide. That baptism, though, of the Holy Spirit is not the same as being full of the Spirit. Because remember, Jesus very carefully enumerated the apostles. You, He said, will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days hence. And as the Lord made that statement in Acts 1 verse number 5, maybe it's time for us to turn the page to Acts chapter 2 and begin reading in verse 1 and notice the fulfillment of this. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come... They were all with one accord in one place. Who's this they? That's critical. If you like to make notes in your Bible, I would encourage you to make a note as to who this they is. One of the clearest things you and I can conclude about biblical interpretation is whenever there's a pronoun, we make careful observations as to what the antecedent of that pronoun is. Who does it refer to? All we have to do is go back one verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 26. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Who's the they? The eleven apostles. Without a doubt. The apostles were the ones under discussion here. And verse 2 now says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The apostles were the ones that were the antecedents of all of those pronouns. We have here a remarkable scene in which those apostles were assembled in Jerusalem just like Jesus told them to. And there came a dramatic event in which there was a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. It filled that place where they were. And these individuals, these men, were baptized in the Holy Spirit, enabling them to instantly be able to speak in tongues they had never learned. Notice, it's not merely some knowledge of the Word of God that was theirs. They instantly 
were able to speak in languages that they'd never studied. They were Galilean men by and large. And suddenly they could speak Parthian. They could speak Roman. They could speak Latin. They could speak Cretan. May we realize there was miraculous matters in this. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit involved it. As you and I close that slide, you'll notice then that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a rare event. Only two times in all of history did it ever happen. Once on the day of Pentecost, this text we just read in light of these Jewish apostles who were baptized in the Holy Spirit, the other... A few years later, when Cornelius and his household were miraculously baptized by the Holy Spirit, you and I note the rarity of it by Paul's observation in Acts eleven sixteen. If this was something that every Christian knew, then it wouldn't be rare at all. But look at how rare Paul said it was. Acts eleven sixteen. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water... But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, for as much then as God gave them the like gift as He did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? Paul had to dip back in his memory over eight years to the last time this had ever happened. And the same thing has now been happening to these who are of the household of Cornelius, that just like it happened to us. Notice Paul said this was not a common thing. It might well be in light of that. You and I can now rather powerfully make this conclusion. The baptism of the Holy Spirit does not happen today. It doesn't. Two times in history is it. Now, that gentleman that I mentioned at the very outset of the lesson, tragically he's mistaken. It doesn't matter how much a person prays for it. Nobody can be baptized with the Holy Spirit today. Nobody. It was for specific occurrences with specific purposes, which we're about to discuss in a moment. And in fact, you might note with me Ephesians 4 verse 5. How powerful is this observation? In that powerful set of platform of unity where Paul quickly said there's one body and one Spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. May I ask, how many baptisms are there? Paul said there's one. Now may we ask, if there is today water baptism, which we know there is, and if there's also the possibility of Holy Spirit baptism, that's at least two. The Spirit... Apparently the Bible's lying if that's the case. Because Paul said there's one. Only one. We cannot misunderstand. One means one. This baptism of the Holy Spirit was a thing for distant history. It occurred on those occasions we've read about, and that was the only occurrences of it, and it is not happening today. Maybe one other way we can appreciate that is this. And it's the next slide. What was the reason for it? The Bible tells us. Why did God baptize those apostles in the Holy Spirit? Why was the household of Cornelius so baptized? What was the purpose behind it? Was it for salvation from sin, like water baptism? Absolutely not. Its purpose, its commission, its objective is wholly different. Let's piece that together in the following way. 
What did that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit do for those apostles on that Pentecost day? We read the first four verses. Note the verses that follow. In verse number 5, doesn't it carefully note, there were in Jerusalem individuals from all kinds of locations. And then in the verses following, there's an enumeration. Many different nationalities of people. And then Peter and the eleven stand up in verse 14, and they begin to preach. And suddenly everyone's amazed. We're hearing them preach in our languages. They're not from our country, but we can understand them. That speaking in tongues that those apostles did that day, it was not in some fanciful gibberish that nobody could understand. The tongues in which they spoke were languages that those people understood. And the people, even themselves, exclaimed, We do hear them preach in our language the wonderful works of God. They knew exactly what was being preached. Did you notice that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit equipped those apostles that day to throw wide open the doors of the church and preach the beautiful message of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the gospel plan of salvation so that all could know what to do to be forgiven from sin. That's what that baptismal measure did. When you and I ask about the second occurrence in Acts chapter 10, what about that day when the Gentiles received it? That too is easy to understand, isn't it? Because Peter affirmed it in that chapter and in the next one again. Did you notice Peter said, These Gentiles have received the same gift we did, which is God's stamp of approval that they have access to the same gospel message we do. Isn't it true that when the church first began, the message was directed to the Jews only? In fact, those apostles felt that way. However, something rather remarkable happened in Acts chapter 10. Isn't it true that Peter saw a tremendous vision? A sheet that had in it both clean and unclean animals, and it was lifted up and down three times. Peter, rise, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. God said, what I've called common, don't you call unclean. And at that point... There was a knock at the door. The servants from Cornelius had come, and they said, "We, Our master has told us to come and find a man named Peter. Peter then remembered, not a few minutes earlier, he had heard a message in a vision. Don't you call any man common or unclean. Peter got his coat, and he went. And he went and preached to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and one who would have been called uncommon and unclean. And Peter preached to him, and as that chapter ended, Paul thanked God for pouring out the Spirit on them. Can any man forbid water that he should be baptized, seeing they've received the same gift we did? Peter got the message. He happily baptized those individuals, those men of the household of Cornelius. And in the very next chapter, he says, as he gave a report back to those Jews in Jerusalem, I'm here to testify, he said, I witnessed it. God poured out on them the same thing He poured out on us. The Gentiles have been, they have been included as well. That's why that baptismal measure was given. So may, may we again notice that baptismal measure wasn't given to every Christian. It wasn't even given to every Christian in the first century. It was given on only two occasions, and that's it. 
Nobody, no matter even if they wish it to be, cannot be baptized with the Holy Spirit today. These reasons, you'll notice, are things in history. I did include at the bottom of that list these observations. Did you note Acts chapter 6, verse 8? The discussion there, again, involves those individuals, those first deacons. Although they were full of the Holy Spirit, they were not baptized in it. And that observation led me to, to, to note also the same for, for Philip two chapters later. Now, pondering that, might we each appreciate this point? Stephen and Philip were both able to work miracles, but neither one had ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so again, might we all note that the baptism of the Spirit was not even a prerequisite for the working of miracles in the first century. It's vital that we appreciate this so that when others ask us about these things, we can at least help them understand. One last thought is this one. I did think it wise to use this, given that last observation at least, to include a brief discussion of the laying on of the hands of the apostles, since that was a matter that was such a vital record in the first century, the laying on of the apostles' hands. Let's begin our discussion like this. So far, we have discussed this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and notice that didn't have anything to do with the ongoing capability of miracles. Just like Stephen and Philip, they never were baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they could work miracles. Well, that leads us to ask, so in what way was this miraculous capability transferred if it didn't come by a baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, you'll notice Acts 8 verses 14 to 17 is perhaps the clearest record we have in all the Word of God of this point. And so let's highlight it, shall we? In Acts chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, so that we read not the fullness of those preceding verses, let me just say this. Philip at the time had made his way into Samaria, and he had had great success preaching the gospel. Verse 12 says, Many, many men and women were baptized. Now that baptism is water baptism, just like you and I lovingly participate in that very occasion when someone, as that old man of sin is buried, and they rise from that watery grave, a new creature in Christ, it's that place where you contact the blood of Christ. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. But on this occasion, notice what, what it was that took place. Beginning in verse 13, it says, Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Simon observed what Philip was able to do, and he was rather impressed. Note verse 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Ghost. Do you see the impression? Philip had baptized a lot of people in water, and they had been forgiven of their sins, they were saved, they were New Testament Christians, and they were blessed in so many ways. But you'll notice the text says, the Holy Spirit in miraculous measure, enabling them to work miracles, had not fallen on any of them. 
Apparently, Philip could not transmit that power. For if he had, there would have been no need for Peter and John to come. Philip couldn't do that. And so the church in Jerusalem sent Peter and John, both of which were apostles. And when they came, they laid their hands on those brethren there in Samaria. And then they received the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. That miraculous measure could only be transmitted and only transferred and only passed by the laying on of the hands of an apostle. That's very useful information because it helps us appreciate other verses such as Acts 19 verses 1 to 7. We see another example of this on that occasion. In Acts 19, now we're in the city of Ephesus, a very different place in Samaria, but the same kind of thing happens Beginning in verse 2 of Acts 19, it says, And he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. Notice the Spirit in that miraculous measure didn't come on them until Paul laid his hands on them. And Paul was an apostle. The only way that that kind of miraculous measure was transmitted in the apostolic days was by the laying on of the hands of an apostle. Again, there are some today who feel as if miraculous capabilities like that still exist. May I ask, are there any apostles still living today? Is anybody living today on whom an apostle laid his hands? We all know that answer to be no. The apostles have been dead now for 1,900 years. Nobody today has ever had an apostle's hands laid on them. Nobody. And therefore, nobody has this power, miraculous in character today like this. As you and I come forward on that slide, notice there were several more examples of this. In Romans 1.11, Paul specifically prayed and was excited about the thought of coming to Rome so I can lay my hands on you and bequeath unto you this miraculous measure. They didn't have it yet despite the fact they were Christians. They had been baptized. What about that scene in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, where there it was none other than Timothy himself? May we ask, Timothy did have capability of working miracles. How did he get it? Paul said his hands had been laid on him. That's rather clear, isn't it? In 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, Paul encouraged Timothy to use that gift and to use it in a manner that's wise and appropriate. The last verse, the last observation, in 1 John 2, verses 20 through 27, it's also listed again on that occasion. Our subject tonight has primarily been the baptism of the Holy Spirit, though this last point has been a bit of a, a tangent issue to it. But I hope we've each had some clarification and appreciation that nobody today can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Its purpose has long since passed. It was fulfilled in Acts 2 and Acts 10. And what if we summarize our lesson then like this? 
you'll notice on this slide we've looked at four points first and then one additional one following it. First, that baptism of the Holy Spirit was the fulfillment of a promise made in the days of Joel. Even Jesus highlighted that promise was to be fulfilled soon in His day, and it was in Acts chapter 2. And it was, of course, to that household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And it hasn't occurred since. Beyond that, might we notice the grand nature of this, wherein we appreciate it was an overwhelming. Those who received it did not have the power to refuse it. It was specifically, overwhelmingly brought upon them. And how jubilantly we see those two cases in which it came about. Thirdly, that distinction where we've tried to note carefully, there were many who were full of the Holy Spirit, just like you and I ought to be. But that isn't nearly the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, that study having to do with the reason attached to it. God had a specific reason for those two instances in which Holy Spirit baptism took place. It was the day the church began in Acts chapter 2 and the day to overwhelmingly give His seal of approval on the addition of the Gentiles. And that happened in Acts chapter 10. Finally, We've noted that distinction to those occurrences wherein the laying on of an apostle's hands was able to transmit that power. In our Wednesday evening study, we devoted quite a bit of time to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, wherein we noted that baptismal measure was even different then than the laying on of the hands of an apostle, wherein those brethren in Corinth, had nine miraculous spiritual gifts given to them. Things like supernatural faith, being able to heal miraculously, supernatural wisdom, the ability to speak in tongues, the ability to prophesy just to name five out of the nine. And yet, as we appreciate all of them, the capability to accomplish them was only brought about when an apostle laid his hands upon a baptized believer somebody who is a child of God. This very night, as we have hopefully cleared up some of these matters, may we and I be equipped then to appreciate the one baptism that is still evident and the one that remains is baptism in water for the remission of sins. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16 teach us that. Didn't Jesus so wonderfully, as He Himself referred to that water, and even later as Peter did as well, in the same way that those of Noah's day, they had an opportunity to respond. They could respond to the preaching of Noah, but sadly, the only ones that did were Noah's own family. It was in that way that Peter said, The like figure wherein to even baptism does also now save us. Just like the waters lifted that ark to safety, baptism lifts you and me to safety. Have you been baptized in water for the remission of sins? They were commanded to on Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 38. Later, the Romans were, the Colossians were, Colossians 2, verses 11 and following. Today, if you and I haven't been washed in the blood of the Lamb, what are we waiting for? This time of encouragement, this hymn of invitation has been chosen. Brother Andrew has selected it, and we're going to stand in just a moment and sing it. And if there's anyone in the audience who would wish to be made right with God... And currently now you're not. God pleads with you. He begs you. He won't force you. But oh, how He implores you. 
the evidence could be no stronger than what it is. Jesus hanged on the cross for you. He was scourged for you. He had nails driven into His hands and feet for you. A Roman soldier even thrust a spear into the Lord's side for you. All of that highlighting the extent to which heaven was willing to go so that all could be saved if they want to be. But He won't make anybody. If you'd like to be saved tonight, we would be happy to make appreciation of your belief, your repentance, and your confession, and then to joyously baptize you into Christ. And as that baptism takes place, you will be overwhelmingly then added to the church, Acts 2.47. Your sins washed away, Colossians 2 verse 12. And you'll be able to then live purely, sinlessly, and holily as you give direction, faithfulness through life. Tonight, if there's anybody in a position that would wish in a public way to make that response, we would invite you, and even grander than that, the Lord invites you. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?